This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 8, 2011. I'm Caleb Brown. Classical liberalism is beset by many modern challenges. Modern incarnations of the market failure critique are now joined by some odd conclusions drawn from behavioral economics. Mark Pennington deals with many of these critiques in his new book, Robust Political Economy. We spoke following a forum for the book held earlier today. I'd like you to elaborate on something you said at the forum, which is controlling government is the mother of all principal agent problems. Can you break those terms out and and just sort of explain what you mean by that? Okay, well, the the main issue that I was focusing on is the the accountability of government. And I was focusing on the idea that if we recognize that people can be opportunistic in the way that they're behaving, as most economists would want to do, then we need to focus on whether or not people can actually operate within a context of incentives which control that sort of behavior. So in a principal agent context, people normally thinking about relationships within firms, that it's quite difficult for shareholders to control what management is doing because shareholders face a sort of collective action problem. So that any one shareholder, if they spend a lot of time sort of checking up on the management, what they're doing there is a kind of collective good that the other shareholders can free ride on. And the argument is, Because if everybody thinks in this sort of way, shareholders don't really hold management to account and management can run amok. And a lot of people would say, you know, if you look at uh, Enron and some of these other corporate scandals, these are classic cases of this, uh, principal agent problems. And on my line of thinking, you can accept that this kind of thing goes on in markets all the time. The problem is, for those people who want to say, well, we need government to come in and regulate these sorts of scenarios, that government itself creates huge principal agent problems. And the biggest one is that voters need to be able to control what public officials are actually doing. Are public officials actually regulating in the public interest or are they regulating for the benefit of special interests? And voters are actually in a much worse situation than your typical shareholder. Uh, The chance that you as an individual voter can actually affect the result of an election in a particular constituency or affect who becomes president or which party is in control of Congress is infinitesimally small. So in those situations, most voters are going to be ignorant about what politicians are doing in their name. And if you actually look at the research evidence on this, it's pretty clear. Most people in the U.S. uh, don't even know the name of their own senator or congressman, let alone the details of the legislation that they're passing. So in this kind of situation, it seems utterly unrealistic to expect that people are actually effectively going to be holding uh, politicians to account. And this is not only in the U.S., I should add. Just It's not kind of an anti-American point that Americans don't know anything about their politicians. If you go to the U.K. or Europe, People are no better informed about uh, who their politicians are, let alone what they're actually doing. And the only way for a private entity, a corporation or or some company to have their principal agent problem be durable is through leveraging some uh, power through the government for the most part. I think that's right. I mean, although there are principal agent problems in corporations, they're more easily addressed because individual shareholders can exit and put their money into an alternative institutional structure. So if you think there's a very severe principal agent problem, you can invest in a firm where uh, you have a greater concentration of ownership, you can have institutional investors, or you can simply put money into a private business, Uh, you know, create an enterprise of your own. But all of these options are ruled out in most situations where politicians are in charge. There's a uniform system imposed on everybody. And the only say that people have um, is basically the chance to vote once every five years or whatever the time term limit may be. <laughs> and in a lot of cases, uh, corporate structures 
that might otherwise uh, emerge to be durable uh, corporate uh, organizations uh, are prevented from doing so because, at least in the United States, I assume mm -hmm. elsewhere around the mm -hmm. world, the rules that govern how your company is organized are, are very stringent. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think that's true. You mentioned that um, new forms of corporate organization are prevented from emerging. I think that's true. But I think a more important point in the context of what's been going on in the recent past is that existing corporate structures are actually being preserved artificially by government policy. So if we look at the auto bailouts, the bailouts in the financial services sector, all of these are basically preserving a defective set of institutions. Whereas if you are going for a genuinely sort of free market approach, which is based on the principle of creative destruction, some of these corporate forms which haven't been functioning well should be allowed to go bust so that we can create the space within which new corporate structures, which don't have such severe principal agent problems, which have new ways of controlling these sorts of situations, can actually emerge. But if you protect the existing interests, which have screwed up, which is what has been going on for the last two years, you actually prevent this process from taking place. Something else you said at the forum was that uh, one of the communitarian critiques of liberalism is that it does not provide, if, if, if perhaps, an adequate mechanism for elevating people's preferences, which aside from the repugnance that a lot of libertarians mm -hmm. would have for the very mm -hmm. idea yeah. of someone uh, yeah. believing that they could elevate my preferences, yeah. um, well, I guess, how do you objectify that idea of elevating somebody's preferences to begin with? Well, I think the idea of elevate, elevating preferences isn't something that libertarians should be, should be scared of. Because, you know, in my talk, one of the things I emphasized was the notion of limited rationality. That plays a big role in the libertarian idea, if you like. So it follows from that that at any point in time, uh, the preferences that people have may not necessarily be the right ones. So we want to have a framework where people can learn, in some sense, potentially better preferences. The problem is that communitarians go from the notion that we need to have a, um, a context where people can elevate the values that they have to the assumption that democracy, having all decisions made by majority rule, is the best mechanism to actually achieve that. And there's no basis um, to, to, to come to that conclusion whatsoever. If we look at uh, learning in contexts such as the arts or science, it typically takes place through minorities coming up with new ideas which break from what the majority wants to do. And then the majority, having originally thought that the idea was crazy or insane, suddenly realizes that actually it's something worth copying. But you can never have that process of copying taking place unless people can actually put their ideas into practice. And if you support everything being done on majoritarian lines, then it's the majority's view is the only view that ever gets put into practice, not these minority views, which could actually be the source of this preference elevation that the communitarians want to, uh, to encourage. And if, uh, if there are certain interests that are protected by mm -hmm. having uh, a majority uh, believe a certain thing, mm -hmm. it creates things like the big lie, for example, in the Soviet Union. Well, there's certainly the problem as well of having um, incentives uh, skewed in such a way in many democratic contexts that people won't actually challenge the status quo. I've been very influenced by a lot of uh, Timur Kuran's writings where he speaks about the phenomena of uh, preference falsification. That in many contexts where you have collective choice, people don't actually stand up for what they believe to be right in the way that they do in their sort of private everyday lives. They go along with what the majority is saying for fear of the social ostracism 
that may uh, fall upon them if they actually stand up uh, to challenge the prevailing wisdom. Now, this creates a big problem for, I think, people who are communitarians because their whole view is based on the notion that it should be collective choice forums where most decisions are actually made. But if you follow the logic of Curran's work, these are precisely the situations where we'll actually lock ourselves in to poor sets of preferences because people who want to challenge the status quo are actually scared of, of doing so. You also talked a little bit about roles and... Um how behind the veil of ignorance, uh, he assumes that people have some sort of fully formed idea about what set of rules are going to uh, play to their interests with regard to distribution of, of resources and they're maximizing their, their own happiness. Yes, I do. I mean, basically, I'm claiming that the kind of assumptions that Rawls makes with the veil of ignorance experiment are the same as is made by various economists who've assumed that uh, central planners are just as well-placed to allocate resources as are market participants. The whole case for a market economy, which is based on dispersed decision-making power, is that we actually don't have the knowledge to agree on what the right pattern of resource allocation is. It's through a competitive process where different ideas about what should be produced and how are actually tested against one another. And that sounds a lot like the debate uh, of uh, the allocative efficiency uh, of markets and the adaptive efficiency uh, That's correct. Of so a market on a classical liberal view is best placed to deal with the fact that we don't necessarily know what to do. We can learn through an evolutionary mechanism about what the appropriate courses of action are. And I'm claiming in the context of theories of justice that we should be doing exactly the same thing. We shouldn't assume that people have the rationality to decide an ideal set of perfect distributional rules. We should think about a framework which facilitates the discovery of what those actual rules should be. But that must mean that people can live by different distributive lights. They can try out different models of distribution. But the idea of competition between distributive norms is ruled out in the Rawlsian experiment because the whole experiment is premised on the idea that we have to choose once and for all a particular set of distributional rules. But if people lack the rationality to make an ideal choice, then that's just about the worst uh, form of decision-making mechanism that you can think about. There is this issue of the lived experience of people uh, that of ideas, of ideas about institutions that people bring with them uh, when maybe ordering themselves in a new way that uh, they hadn't, hadn't considered before or was not possible before. And uh, some political economists now say, well, look, too many economists have been effectively ignoring uh, the, li the lived experience up to this point uh, before embarking on something new. Uh, and if you don't know this history, it's very difficult for you to make really clear uh, assertions about what's likely to emerge. Yes, I agree with that. I think the key point about lived experience, I mean, it goes to John Stuart Mill spoke very eloquently about the importance of experiments in living. Uh, Hayek speaks a great deal about the importance of, of tacit knowledge, the idea that a lot of what we learn isn't what you can actually put into words. It's simply what people 
see other people doing. You know that something works by observing it, but you can't actually put into words why that is the case. Now, this kind of information is precisely the sort of information that can't be communicated by lots of people getting around a table and having an argument with one another. It's the information that can only be transmitted by allowing people to try out their own experiments in living and then allowing other people to see in practice whether or not they succeed or fail. And that's a fundamental point. It applies to economics, but it also applies to the realm of values and ethics as well, that we need to have a context which enables people to experiment with lots of different sorts of models to be able to learn from their experiences, from their successes, but also, crucially, from their failures as well, because failure is as much a part of learning um, as is success in this kind of a model. And letting people see it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Letting, see, seeing failure before your eyes. Mark Pennington is author of Robust Political Economy. You can watch the full book forum at cato.org.